Hello, Mountain. Good to see everybody. If you're a guest, welcome. I'm Ben, one of the pastors here. Glad you're with us. Um, hey, you know, when we gather here in, in like what we do uh, at any of our campuses and any of our services, at the same time, a bunch of kids are hanging out in Mountain Kids, and uh, adults and others are pouring into them and helping them get anchored in God's Word, and it's great to think about, and, and recently we went through something called promotion, where everyone gets to kind of celebrate their progress and move on up to the next class, and so we're excited for that, and one of the things that means is that kids who are in fifth grade, who are going to be in sixth grade next year, they, they move on up to big church. They get to move up with us, and some of those are probably, they've been here for a couple weeks, you're probably here, you might even be here with us tonight on Sunday night, and we just want you to know, um, we're, we're ready for you, and we're excited. This service is planned with you in mind, and I know when you look around, there's a lot of really old people, but um, we also have you in mind, and so can we just show the sixth graders, if they're here, if there are any here tonight, uh, we're not going to make you stand, just let's show them how welcome they are, and that we're glad you're here, so welcome, okay? Okay. Hey, and how could we really begin, I know you just saw a video, but I, I don't know how we could begin without at least giving me the chance to say how awesome was last week. I was really excited about that. 276 people, as you've probably heard by now, and we're just so thankful for your step of surrendered obedience and, and just want you to know that was one step that was very, very important, but there are many more steps to come, and we want to be with you uh, through every step that you take and uh, be your church family, and we want to we just help you to get to the place where Jesus is the thread that that weaves through your whole life. And uh, that's really what this series is about. We're talking about called thread. Thread thread is something that holds a garment together, right? It holds all the pieces of some of, of something together. I was in uh, eighth grade home ec. Anybody have home ec back in the day? Yeah, we made stuff. I made a I made a I got the, I learned how to make a pizza sandwich, I think. And then they showed me how to make a pillow, a football-shaped pillow. But I also made a like a warm-up jacket. A po it was polyester blue and had a little stripe down here, and I sewed in the zipper and everything. I, I learned this, that when you put the pieces out, you got the sleeves and the body and the collar and the zipper and all that. They're just, just disparate pieces. But, but when you sew them together, they, they all come together, and you use thread for that. That's what thread does. Pulls everything together. So... What holds you together? What's the, what's the unifying thing in your life that sort of holds all of the pieces of your life together? Your, your relationships, your, your work ethic, what you think about um, children or finances or marriage or sex, how you deal with hard times, what you think about happens after you die the environment, all of it. What's the, th is there a thread? And, you know, people are like, well, yeah, I, I learned a little bit from, you know, Dr. Phil, and, you know, I learned a little bit from Uncle Fred, and, but what, what's your, what's your thread? We all have a thread. What's your thread? We're going to be studying together over the next few weeks the, the life of a guy who lived a long time ago. Um, his name is David. And as we look at his life, we're going to, to see pretty quickly that here's a guy who found his thread, and his thread was God. And so when we study the life of David, what you're really going to be studying is, is a lot about God. Like you're going to learn a ton about the character of God, and it's also going to help you know how God could be your thread.
God looking at the life of David, it'll force you to look at your own in that way. Now, David, before uh, we talk about him, just a little bit of background. Da- David was a remarkable guy. Um, there's more in the Bible about David than any other figure other than Jesus. Okay, so like big heroes like Abraham or Jacob or Elijah have like 10 or at most 14 chapters on them. David, 66. And he's mentioned in the New Testament about 60 times. Way, way more stuff on him than anybody. And he was remarkable. He was a poet. He wrote about half of the book of Psalms. And, and he was a, a musician and uh, good with instruments. And yet he was a noble statesman, a military hero. He was a king. And yet he had a tender side. He was a relationally loyal friend in many instances. He he was a national hero, respected by all, trustworthy and humble. And yet he was so far from perfect. He, He, after earning the public's trust and respect, forfeited all of that in a season of sensual pleasure and got caught up in, later in his life in a scandal of lust and, and murder and cover-up and lived out some brutal consequences from earlier mistakes he'd made as a weak parent and a partial, showing partiality as a leader, and he struggled with those consequences for the rest of his life. But through all the great highs and all of the low lows in this guy's life, there was a thread. Just like in your life, in all the highs and the lows, you need a thread. So to dive in with David, we go back about 40 years before he comes on the scene, and uh, Israel, um, God's chosen people, are going through a rough time. It's, it's not a great time. Um, Eli, the priest, has died, and um, the days when they have the Philistines subdued and they're on top of their game have long passed, and now things are in a bit of a shambles. And Samuel, the, the priest, prophet, is very old, and shaky, and they thought, well, maybe his kids will take over, and they're scoundrels and no good. And everybody just finally says, hey, can we just have a king like everybody else has a king? And God says, well, I'm your king. And they're like, no, we want a real king like everybody else. And sometimes God gives you what you ask for, even if it's not what's best for you. And he gave them a king. And the king they ended up with was a guy named Saul. And Saul, um, well, he seemed great right out the gate. I mean, he looked the part. He was tall, dark, and handsome. We're going to learn that you know, tall guys aren't always all they're cracked up to be, okay? Tall can be overrated, and pretty soon Saul is not tall, dark, and handsome. He, he's short-tempered and dark of mood and ugly in his attitude, and the people get disillusioned, and the nation is in a spiritual free fall, and they're politically at risk, and God has mercy on them and says, I'm going to give you another shot, give you another king. I will choose another king. And that's sort of where we pick up the story. First Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. God sends Samuel to Saul with the news. But now your kingdom must end, Saul. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That's what God is always looking for. The Lord's already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. God's always looking for a person after his own heart. Chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, it's time. You've mourned long enough for Saul, but I've rejected him as the king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil. It's time to go to Bethlehem. We're going to have an anointing. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I've selected one of his sons to be my king. 
So Samuel shows up at Jesse's house. They think it's bad news because it's a politically difficult time. They assume if Samuel shows up, it's got to be bad. He says, no, I'm here in peace, and one of of your kids is going to be the king. And uh, nobody knows what's going to happen, including Samuel. He doesn't know who the king's going to be. God's going to tell him. Well, he walks in the door. As soon as he gets there, the oldest son of Jesse is, is this strapping, young, tall, beautiful specimen named Eliab. And he looks at him and he goes, that, that got to be him right there. That guy is the king material. You know, Takes one look at him. But God says, no, it's not him. It's not Exhibit A. In fact, it's not Exhibit B or Exhibit C. There's other sons that are there. And, and, and it's kind of comical. Almost Jesse's there with these sons. And he's like, oh, you don't want him? No problem. Grabs him by the nape of the neck, pulls him back, pushes the next son out there. How about this one? Abinadab. You like him? And Samuel's kind of like, yeah, he's pretty, he's pretty strapping looking guy, big old tall dude and looking great. And, and, and uh, God says no. And so he's like, nope. And so one after the other. And it's sort of like Simon Call, like, nope, get him out. And, 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 and they, they just keep coming and going until finally, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. Anybody learn about what? People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? At the heart. Aren't you glad the Lord looks at you that way? Looks at you, doesn't judge you by whether you're old or young or black or white or rich or poor or male or female. He just looks at the heart. That's what he saw. Well, they go through all the sons. That way, <laughs> Samuel says, you got any more sons? Jesse's like, well, no. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm David, who's out in the fields watching the sheep, the youngest little guy. Next thing you know, someone's running out through the fields. David, they want you up at the house. And here he comes, comes straggling into the house. And when he walks in, the Lord says to Samuel, that's the one anoint him. And there's David with all of his brothers standing around in a circle. Little kid with holes in his jeans and deep poof on his boots, sweat on his brow, sees this old man hobble over to him, pour oil on his head, dripping down off his beard, and whispers in his ear, David. God uh, has a knack for choosing the most unlikely, doesn't he? The least likely. And then to elevate him and to show that he can work through the seemingly insignificant. You know, when the world tries to refuse you, God can still choose you. When people around you try to excuse you, God wants to still use you. And this reminds us, it's one of the places of many where David reminds us of Jesus, who was another sort of unsung, obscure hero from the same city of David, the town of David, the people of David in Bethlehem who rose out of obscurity and God raised him up to be the very king of kings. That same trajectory is what God likes to do with all of us, really. Kind of comes down to what he's looking for in us. He's looking for the stuff in you that he was looking for in David. Because the superficial doesn't impress God. God doesn't read People magazine. He likes to choose nobodies and Turn them into somebody's, but it all starts with him looking for a person after his own heart. That's your path.
Um, several years ago, um, American yachtsman Michael Plant attempted a solo crossing uh, of the Atlantic Ocean from the U.S. to France. And his friends and his family gathered, and they had a big celebration and a uh, you know, photo op and all this stuff. They had this celebration. He was an expert sailor, a real experienced yachtsman. He'd been all over the world and studied this, and he had a boat called the Coyote at the time, which was real first rate, state of the art. They had uh, the hull, the materials, the mast, the rigging, all of that. It looked beautiful, paid a lot of attention to how it appeared, and um, all of that. And it had this super fancy um, technology in it that allowed the positioning coordinates to tell you right where he was all the time and all this. He was set up for success. But uh, as he took off, 11 days into the journey, um, they lost radio contact with Plant. <clears throat> they knew there was like a um, storm, so they figured he was just busy navigating the storm and didn't worry too much at first. But then when several days passed, they eventually sent out um, search and rescue teams. And uh, they were very shocked when they discovered the coyote upside down in the middle of the Atlantic. No sign of Plant. As they pulled the boat up uh, onto a freight liner, they saw that the lifeboats had never been used. So whatever happened had happened quickly. And it wasn't supposed to happen. I mean, that was seemingly impossible. You weren't supposed to be able to capsize a boat like that. They're built for taking, you know, storms at sea, and the idea is they're always going to be able to right themselves. And the reason, the reason is, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of picture this here. I'm a great artist, as many of you know. I'm going to draw the boat exactly as it, as it was. This is the boat. Down here, below the water line, there was a 8,000-pound metal plate or device bolted into and onto the keel. You know what it's called? What's that called? That weight. What's it called? Ballast. That's out of sight, below the water line. You never see it, really. It wasn't there in the photo op when they left port, but it's really important because that's when the boat starts rocking and heaving and pitching. It's the ballast that keeps you afloat and keeps you upright, but somehow, we don't know exactly how, the bolts and the mechanism that fastened that ballast to the bottom of the boat just became screwed, and that ballast dropped to the bottom of the ocean, and that guy was a sitting duck, and the first storm that came along, it was all over. You know, all, all of our lives are a little bit like that boat. A little bit like that boat. And all of us are, have a journey out in front of us, don't we? And as we do so in our lives and build a life, it's very tempting to spend a lot of time and attention around the stuff that everybody sees. The part of you that gets noticed. The, the, the parts of you that, that we can show off and may, make our boats look beautiful. But I'm going to tell you something that you already know. But we all need the reminder that what's true of a boat is true in your life, and that is that it's what's beneath the waterline that matters most. Like who you really are. Your character. Like your soul. Who you are beneath the waterline is, is like who you are when no one's looking. And that, that's your ballast especially in a storm, and that is what we mean when we talk about grace. So 
in Chronicles 16.9. It says that the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Fully committed. Like, is your heart fully committed to his? Like, no locked closets, no stuff swept under the rug. Like, like fully committed where you, can, you, you mess up, you confess it. You, you grieve over what breaks God's heart. You, you get excited about what gets God excited. That's a, that's a heart that beats with God's heart, and that's who you are. Psalm 78 talks about David, and it says, you know, he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. Integrity in the heart. That's what's below the waterline. That's who you are. Who are you becoming? What's your ballast? Where's your thread? And for David, he was a man after God's own heart. And all of that sort of set him up for his most famous exploit, which we'll talk about next. You know, uh, this last week we celebrated uh, D-Day, the Battle of Normandy, right? Back in, what, 1945, right? Is that right? Uh, a long time ago. There's lots of famous battles in, in history. You can maybe think of a few, the Battle of the Bulge, Battle of Midway, uh, Battle of Gettysburg, and so forth. But perhaps the most famous battle in all of the Bible was not fought between two armies, but, but between two guys, individuals, David and Goliath, representing the Israelites and the Philistines in the Valley of Elah. And the Philistines were a fierce perennial nemesis of the Israelites, and they were fierce and warmongering and large in number and very aggressive, and they had much more sophisticated military technology than the Israelites. They were stronger. They had better iron and superior tools, so Israel was no match for the Philistine army. And yet the storms of war were gathering, and one day we find in chapter 17 that they're gathered there in the Valley of Elah on opposing sides. Think of a scene from like the movie Gettysburg or Braveheart or something like that with, with the, the, you know, the, the armies camped out and opposite pitches of the valley, something like that. And, and this is what was going on that day. And chapter 17, verse 4, says that a champion or representative leader from the Philistine army named Goliath from Gath steps out of the Philistine camp. And the first thing that the Bible says about him is that he's huge. His height was six cubits and a span. And even his name, Goliath of Gath, it sounds kind of awesome, doesn't it? Like if, if his name is like, Chad from Paulston. It's just not going to scare anybody. But he's Goliath from Gath. You know, Ben from Bel Air doesn't have the ring to it, but Goliath from Gath. And he's about seven foot or nine foot. We're not sure tall. You remember I was a kid, I used to have a Guinness Book of World Records book, and in the middle they had the pictures, and one of them was always of the world's tallest man. His name was Robert Wadlow. Do you remember that guy? Remember his pictures? Here's what he, wa here's what he looked like. He was 8 foot 11 inches, 8 foot 11 inches, and, and that's a tall guy. They said his hands were 12 inches long, which is kind of amazing, and also a little confusing because it means his hand was a foot, but anyway. Um, Goliath is like that. He's huge, and 
verses 5 to 7 describe, just kind of bring us in and, and, and just let us look him over. And we're, we're meant by the narrative to kind of just be awestruck by his bronze helmet on his head and his huge, you know, mail that he's wearing, a scale of armor. He's got stuff, you know, armor officially greaves on his legs and jo- a, a huge bronze javelin with a big old head on it that weighed about 25 pounds and a bunch of armor that weighed about 125 pounds. The, the shaft on his spear was, was, was huge maybe about 15 more pounds. I mean, he's a beast, and we're meant to feel intimidated by him. And you look at him, and you can just see this is a, a man of steel, like a walking, impenetrable you know, superhero, and here he comes, Goliath of Gath, and he steps forward. And the archaeologists say that the way that the, those valleys were represented and the dry, arid conditions, you could shout across and be heard across. And so Sure enough, Goliath yells out a taunt and a threat and says, let's make a deal. I'll represent the Philistines. Who will come and fight mano a mano? The winner will have our enemies be subject to us. It was a technique commonly used in those days. And then he begins to defy God and talk smack and disrespect to all of them. And chapter 17, verse 11, listen to this. On hearing the Philistines' words... Saul and all the Israelites who had received all these promises from God, they were terrified and deeply shaken. When, when something threatens what you believe in or, or what you trust, it can shake you. And all this smack talk and disrespect and threats and you awful Israelites, you stupid weaklings, you're, you have worthless God. All of this continues for like over a month, the Bible says. Every single day they get out of their tent, they go there and there's that ugly old giant saying that stuff and they run back in their tent. And Jesse's sons are there for that. They're in the army. They're warriors, you know, the big tall guys. And Jesse's back home. And he wonders how it's going. He can't flip on CNN. He can't get them on FaceTime or email him. So he grabs David out of the field. Even though he's anointed, he's still just being a shepherd boy for now. Grabs him and says, run down with a care package and check out and see how the boys are doing. So sure enough, David goes. And as, and as David arrives one day, it's right when Goliath is coming out to give his daily taunt. Look at verse 23. As he's talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. And then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. And as soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. And David can't stand it. He says, wait a second. You, you can't let him talk about the living God that way. And David goes to Saul in verse 32. And he says, don't worry about that Philistine. I'll fight him. And Saul says, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. He was a man when he was born, apparently. You can't win. There's no way. This giant's too big. Been there? Some of us are there right now. Well, David, David has a different attitude. <coughs> He's like, well, I, I, I feel very confident. 
and, and he reveals why. And it's not because he's been hanging out with Mr. Miyagi or Chuck Norris. He says, you know what? God has helped me so many other times. He tells some stories about what God did to help him in the past. He believes God's going to do it in the future, and he demands to go fight. And Saul finally says, go for it. Here, put this on. Tries to dress him up like a little miniature Goliath. And David says, I can't do this. I can't wear this stuff. It's not me. You don't understand. Because here's what was going on. Saul kept looking at how big the giant was, but David was looking at how big God was. So where are you looking? Makes a world of difference. 1 Samuel 17, verse 40, David heads down into the stream, the ravine in the middle of the valley, and he picks up five smooth stones, and he puts them in a shepherd's bag, and then he's got his stick, and he's got his sling, and he starts off, he's going to go fight a giant. Five smooth stones. Well, a lot of times we think it was something like this, like a slingshot, you know, a little something like this. <coughs> you know, I've got a little Hershey kiss here. I think we can demonstrate how. Are you guys ready out there? Did you all sign your waivers before you came in? All right, here we go. Heads up out there. Wake up. Oh, that didn't go. Let's try it again. <laughs> try it again. There's nobody on the front row. All right, here we go. This one I promise is going to come. You ready? All right, here you go. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. I told you someone should have woke her up before we did that. Hey, guys, it, it wasn't one of these, okay? It wasn't a little uh, uh, t something from a gift shop in San Diego. Um, it wasn't one of those. It was more like uh, like this. It was it was like a leather strap with a little pouch in it, and these things were lethal. They were they were not a child's toy, and they were very impressive aim with these things. In fact, they were thrown then like underhand softball pitch, like zing, and they would come out of there 60 miles an hour, and and they were big. They, they would choose you know some of these little stones that were big and round, as big around as like a, a a billiard ball or a or a tennis ball, and they could throw them almost a quarter mile sometimes. And if it hit you, it would go right through bone. And this is how David loads up, puts those things in his pocket, throws the thing over his shoulder, grabs his stick, and down he goes into the valley. He gets there, and verse 43, and Goliath looks up, and he's just insulted and amused. He says, am I some kind of dog that you come at me with a stick? Maybe David used a stick to distract him. I don't know. And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come on over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. You know, giants love to intimidate. David says in verse 45, you know, you come to me with your sword and your spear and your javelin and all that stuff to make you look so big and strong. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. When you look at the giant, it'll always strike fear. When you Look at God, you can always stand in your faith. And that insignificant little shepherd boy points something out here that all of us need to know when we're facing a giant. Verse 46, he doesn't say, I'm going to kill you. Nope. Pay very close attention. What he says is, today the Lord will conquer you. Now, I'm going to kill you and cut off your head. But this battle belongs to the Lord. He goes on to say at the end that it's the Lord who's going to rescue the people. He knows that the battle belongs to the Lord. Listen, friends, there are some battles in life you can't win and you shouldn't try to fight because they're bigger than you and you'll lose every time. It's why you've got to sometimes admit that the giant is something that needs to be fought by God alone. Somebody listening to me needs to give their battle to the Lord. You've been working on it a long time and you're not winning because you're trying to do it in your own strength. David didn't do that. He didn't go down there to kill a giant. He went down there to trust in God. 
God is bigger than any giant. David, verse 49, took out, took out a stone. I don't know if he did it kind of on the sly. As he's walking toward him. Pulled that stone out, put it in that sling. Verse 49 says he hurled it. Just like, I just picture it like. Like he did about 9,000 times every day for the last 10 years. And with his sling, it hit the Philistine in the forehead, and the stone sank in. That can't be good if you're Goliath. And Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. There's a cloud of dust. The giant is down. David lopped off his head. The giant is dead. The people are free because God is bigger than any giant. Let me ask you a question. What giant do you need to face? With God's help, isn't it about time? No, I'm serious. Because sometimes we kind of come to peace with our giants. Remember how back in the camp, the giant, the big ugly giant would come out every morning and he would taunt and, they, and the Israelites would get up and they'd come out of their tent and be like, oh, here we, here we go again. And he would shame them, embarrass them, he'd talk them down, and they'd go running back in their tent. And they just got to where they lived with it. You have any ugly giants like that? That you just kind of come to terms with? <coughs> I tried to quit. I couldn't, so I guess we'll just go this, this path. I tried to solve that problem. We tried to get out of this dark thought pattern. I tried to get past that relationship problem where there's selfishness squeaking me. There, there's some problem. There's some pain. There's some person or whatever. Every, everybody faces giants. But the question is not how big is your giant. The question is how big is your God? Show me your giant. Show me your giant. I'll show you God is bigger. What's a giant you need to face? Because wherever you are, the path between where you are and where you need to be, want to be, where God wants you to be, always runs through fear. I don't know that anybody, that's not true for there's a giant in your way. What God's bigger? What's your giant? I've got to tell you a couple stories. I'm going to tell you about Rachel. She woke up with a gun to her head. Someone pointing a gun at her head. She, she, it's a long story, and it didn't happen overnight, but that was a wake-up call. She got out of that situation somehow. But her life had been spiraling since she was like 12 years old when her dad got hooked on meth and her mom could barely take care of her own self, let alone take care of Rachel. Tough upbringing. At age 22, someone introduced her to the club scene, and she became an exotic dancer. And she suddenly felt, instead of an insecure little girl, she felt sort of like people were paying attention to her. And she was enthralled with how men told her she was beautiful and gave her gifts. And, and she thought this was maybe the answer to the love and the acceptance that she so desperately hungered for. But that thread unraveled pretty quickly. One drink led to another, one drug led to another, one man led to another, one night led to another, and none of it filled the deep pain and emptiness she had inside. Some mornings her five-year-old would have to take care of her because she couldn't get out of bed, so strung out and hung over and depressed. So in a very dark, hopeless place, up against a very big giant, she began to think maybe why not just end her whole life. 
So on the way to work, she was trying to get up the courage to drive her car off the road and end it all. She was frustrated that she couldn't work up the courage to do it. She gets to work, and she just can't bear to face another day of that world she'd come to despise. And so she gathered up her stuff. She's going to leave work with thoughts of ending her life again. And as she's preparing to leave, just then a group of women from a nearby church came by the club, as they often did. They had asked the owner of the club for permission to come by and to visit with the women, bring them gifts, and pray for them if they wanted them to. And some of those ladies were showing up right then, and and one of them could tell that Rachel was upset and asked if she wanted to talk. And Rachel was furious because first she couldn't end her life the way she wanted. Now she's being interrupted by a bunch of ladies from church. You're from church, huh? Well, let me tell you about my life. And she just uncorked. She just let it rip, uh, uh, unloaded her, all of her hurt, her pain, the abuse, the anger, all the, all the rotten stuff and the dark stuff, and through tears just finally at the end said, so there, what do you, what do you and your God think about that? And the other woman listening to her had tears of her own in her eyes by then and said, Rachel, I'm so grateful you shared your story. I'm so sorry I let that happen. No, uh, no pious advice, no little sermon about things she should do, no judgment, just sort of a gracious, compassionate, Jesus-like presence. And that those words kind of blanketed Rachel like a grace blanket, and it sort of softened her inside, and she began to talk, and they talked and talked and talked, and eventually they talked about Jesus. They talked about her shame and her brokenness, and, and, and she finally said, you know, I'm an exotic dancer, I'm a drug addict, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a horrible mother, I'm a terrible friend, I'm a morally empty person, how could Jesus ever love me? But you know, Jesus meets people exactly where they are, like wherever they are. That's where he meets people. And that night, Jesus scooped Rachel up out of the darkness in a nightclub and gave her a hope and a future. And that giant she faced of, of addiction and habits and lifestyle and shame and unworthiness, that giant fell hard. Because sometimes the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And today, Rachel's life looks so different than just a couple years ago. She no longer works as an exotic dancer. Drugs and alcohol no longer rule her life. Jesus is healing her wounds day by day, bit by bit. She's in a Bible study. She's actually moved to a new city where she lives with a family, and her son is doing so much better. She's becoming a better parent. That's not an easy road. It's still difficult. She still hears giants' voices from time to time, and she's got a lot to learn and unlearn, but she's sober, and she's sane, and she's alive, and she's, and you know what her kid said the other day to her? Uh, Mommy, I like the new you. She got baptized, and now she shares her story to anyone who needs a reminder that the most formidable giant is never too big and mean and ugly for Jesus. What's your giant? I'll tell you one more story. Because we all love an underdog story. We all love a story like these with David and Goliath and something that, you know, the problem gets resolved. But there are some losses in life where there's no way what you've lost can be given back to you. Like you hoped for reconciliation, but it ended in divorce. You prayed for the baby, but you lost it anyway. 
Not every story has a happy ending that we want, and not every giant seems to fall with the first stone. All right. What then? Courtney and her husband Andrew knew each other in elementary school, and they um, were high school sweethearts and got married at age 20. Courtney's dream was that she and Andrew would live together their whole lives and die together in their beds when they're 99. Andrew was a good guy, godly man, good husband and father. He headed out for a, a, a ride on his bicycle, as he often did, and uh, while he was gone, she got that phone call and heard um, an ominous With the worst possible news that ripped her soul apart, Andrew had been struck by a bus in a situation that killed him. He gathers up the kids and is rushing to the hospital when she gets the second call. walks into the hospital a widow. And everything after that sort of a blur to her, um, the memorial, the relatives, all of that, wave after wave of grief. She remembers a couple of days later going to the gravesite and just saying, God, you got to help me. I, I just buried half of me and my family. And I, I, I don't even know how to breathe right now. I need breath in my lungs if I'm going to make it. And I was asked to be in life there are no easy answers and we don't need little shallow soundbite Christian statements to, to get by. There are deep grief times in life and desperate moments and maybe you know what that's like to have the shadow of the giant loom over every part of your life as if it's an eclipse. You don't even know if you can breathe. We heard a sermon not long after that by a pastor who was preaching out of Ezekiel chapter 37. It was about God breathing life back into dry, dead bones. It's a story from the Bible about how God brings new life to places that don't have any life. And in the story, God asks the prophet, can these dead bones live? And Ezekiel says, God, oh Lord God, you know. In other words, God, I don't know. I don't understand, but I trust you, and I trust that you know what you're doing. And that, it kind of became a defining moment for Courtney, because she realized anew that God was with her in this difficult and horrible time, and that she was not alone before her giant. A couple years have passed now since Andrew's death. And she has slayed a lot of giants in her life. But none of them has brought her husband back. There's a lot of things that are still really hard. She misses him terribly. It's tough, it's tough with the kids. And her life will never be the same. The dreams that she had drawn them up will never come true. But Courtney has a message for you today if you're facing a giant like that. And her message is not that her husband has been miraculously restored to her. Her message is simply that she has found Jesus to be very close to her in her journey. And Jesus My friend, what I, I hope happens in your life over the next few weeks is we allow ourselves to become people who are more and more people after God's own heart. Is that you will realize that that doesn't mean that while God is slaying some of your giants, and he will, 
It doesn't mean, though, that there's a guarantee that there will be no more giants and that everything will have a happy ending in your life just as you draw it up this side of heaven. Because it doesn't happen that way. God didn't bring her husband back, but God did bring Courtney back, and he'll do that kind of thing for you too. God is enough for her every day. We call that sustaining grace, moment by moment, grace by grace, and God will be enough for you through every sorrow and frustration and letdown and heartbreak. Jesus is enough, even when it seems you're the hope you're going to. Jesus is the thread. Let me pray. God, thank you for assuring us that you will never leave or forsake us. Thank you that, like David, we can be reminded that what's below the waterline is what matters most in our lives and help us to become people who truly seek after your heart. Thank you, God, for the example of Jesus, for the example of David, and draw us close to you now as we seek to make you our thread. We pray this in the name of Jesus.